Notes from America is supported by Future Hindsight, an award-winning podcast that shares big ideas about participating in American democracy beyond voting but short of running for office. Join host Mila Atmos for stimulating and incisive conversations with citizen changemakers on topics ranging from gerrymandering, policing equity, and voting rights. In this election year, Future Hindsight offers an unaffiliated perspective into what's at stake and how citizens can make an impact at the local, state, and national level. You'll always come away with something hopeful. Tune in every Thursday to get engaged and stay engaged. WNYC Studios is brought to you by Zbiotics. Seize the day after a night of drinks with Zbiotics pre-alcohol probiotic drink. Zbiotics was invented by PhD scientists to break down the byproduct of alcohol, which is most responsible for making you feel crummy the next day. Drink Zbiotics before your first drink, drink responsibly, and you'll wake up refreshed and ready to take on the day. Try it for yourself at zbiotics.com slash WNYC and get 15% off your first order when you use WNYC at checkout. That's zbiotics.com slash WNYC and use the code WNYC at checkout for 15% off. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Would you consider yourself a naturally optimistic person? I'd say it's a little bit of both. The goals that I want to achieve here are pretty, like, set. And, you know, if I don't be optimistic, I don't think I'm going to achieve it, so... Not at all. Actually, no. Uh, I'm very optimistic, yeah. You feel optimistic about today, so don't have any reason to feel it will be different. And would you consider yourself a normally optimistic person in that regard? more who I am. So just to know that how many things need to go right every single day for one to get out of bed, go through the day. So I would say in that sense, I would definitely consider myself an optimist. The things are working uh, the way they intend to. It's Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright. Welcome to the show. For today's show, I want to share a conversation I had with playwright Lynn Nottage back in 2021. Lynn is still the only woman to win two Pulitzer Prizes for playwriting, which, of course, is a sad fact, actually. But nonetheless, a statement about the way her work just forces you to sit up and pay attention. Lynn is as much a journalist as a playwright. She's chronicling the American experience and focusing her art on big, hard questions about opportunity and justice and human rights. And yet, her work is covertly optimistic. When I first had this conversation with Lynn, she had three shows headed to the stage that season, two of which got Tony nominations in the end. She wrote the book for the musical MJ about Michael Jackson. She developed an operatic version of her popular early show, Intimate Apparel. And her dark comedy, Clyde's, was all about a group of people trying to find work and build their lives after getting out of prison. And notably, when Clyde's was on Broadway, it did something really unusual for the industry. Part of the run was streamed online, so people didn't have to come all the way to New York to see it due to the pandemic. Anyway, here's my conversation with playwright Lynn Nottage. We talked about her career exploring the emotional terrain of class and race and about the deep lessons she found in a sandwich. Lynn, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's my pleasure. Thank you. You are, as near as I can tell, the busiest person in theater. I am. (laughs) That is not a lie. So I'm really humbled that you have made this time for us. So I guess before the pandemic, you know, it was unheard of to offer streaming tickets to a Broadway show. Obviously, we all started doing unheard of things with screens in the course of the pandemic. I mean, it's one of a few ways you've leaned into changing theater and the way it does business. You've been one of the more vocal artists in that regard that, you know, we can't go back to normal when we get back. How how do you think it's going? I mean, yes, there's some ways in which we're back and it's status quo. But I do think that a lot of really exciting things that um, have happened 
that started during the pandemic, particularly since we were in the midst of this cultural reckoning. And it really forced the industry to begin to interrogate their practices. And some people really stepped up to the table and mm. began shifting the way their theaters look. And some people, you, you know, as always are resistant to change. And I can mm. only speak anecdotally about the rooms that I'm in and the institutions that I'm interfacing with. And it feels as though they heard that mm. they're really trying to figure out how do we create a theater that is more inclusive, that is more welcoming, that really is reflective of the kinds of diversity that we have in our culture. I mean, so that's an optimistic view, I, I, that a refreshingly optimistic view. I mean, there's so much um, cynicism about change in general in so many spaces in our well, society. Well, you know, right I, I'm an optimist, Kai. I am someone that in order to get up in the morning, I have to imagine that I'm going to be facing a day that was better than yesterday. Mm. And I think I bring some of that optimism with me into the rooms, into the rehearsal spaces that I go into. And just speaking about some of the rooms that I'm in, we've had people in diversity, folks who've done training, which has sunk in. And in one of the musical that I'm working on, it's probably one of the most beautiful companies that I've ever encountered. And it's mm -hmm. a large company and there's a lot of room for, for dissent and conflict. But because of the work that we've been doing, it really feels quite different mm -hmm. than the space might have prior to the shutdown COVID. The musical is MJ the Musical, and we're, we'll return to that in some detail a little later on. But let's talk about Clyde's. Let's talk about the show itself. It's a dark comedy set entirely in the kitchen of a truck stop diner run by a tyrant of a woman who only hires people who've been incarcerated. And because they struggle to get hired with a record anywhere else, they are dependent upon her supposed generosity as she lords over them. And I guess, first off, Lynn, this is not exactly a welcoming Broadway setup to me, <laughs> um, a comedy about uh, formerly incarcerated people being abused. Why was this on your heart right now? You know, I've been thinking about this play for a long time. We originally premiered it in Minneapolis before COVID, um, and it really comes about from the work and interviews that I was doing while I was researching my play, Sweat and Red in Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. I came across so many people who were open and generous and who also happened to be formerly incarcerated. And I began listening to their stories and many of them were incredibly heartbreaking. And I wanted to figure out how can I tell this story about folks who are in limbo, in a liminal space, who really feel stuck and trapped, you know, because of their circumstances. Many of the folks that I interviewed had been out of um, prisons from anywhere from a week to a year. And they had one thing in common, is that they kept hitting up against a wall when they were looking for opportunity, whether it be housing or whether it be jobs or even whether it was reintegrating with their families. Is you know They hit that box that you have to check when you're going for employment that says yeah. you know, you're incarcerated. And then it became this door that slammed in their faces. And I was really interested in how do people who are in a liminal space really resurrect their lives? How do they get out? And I found this space, which was Clyde's, you know, a little box, which is a sandwich shop on this very nondescript um, stretch of road in Berks County, where um, I could grapple with some of these issues. It, you know, it often left me off kilter a bit, you know, it, because it's almost a screwball comedy at times, you know, I mean, just <laughs> laugh out loud, funny, almost slapstick. But then... Also, as a viewer, you aren't sure whether you're supposed to be thinking something is funny sometimes, you know, like it's a little like, wait, uh oh, maybe I shouldn't be laughing at this situation. And, and in some ways, that's a hallmark of your work, isn't it? I mean, is, is, do you agree with that? Um, yeah, I do. I do. I mean, one of the things that I love about humor is that it is disarming. It's all of those things that you just said. But laughter also is this fantastic conduit, which you can filter through truth. I think that an audience, um, when they're laughing, in some ways, you know, they're, they're more open. You know, the mouth is open, the body mm. is open and relaxed. And I think that they're more ready and willing to engage with complicated ideas. Mm -hmm. And so I really love using humor. And even in plays like Sweat and Ruin, which are considered to be tragedies, I think that it's, humor is always threaded throughout it. 
Yeah, yeah. I like that idea. Your mouth is literally open. You're <laughs> laughing. You're, you're ready to take things in. Well, you know, and there's a there was a lovely profile of you, or I thought it was lovely, uh, in T Magazine. And the writer made an astute point in this regard that your work is always really accessible and familiar to audiences in form, but incredibly challenging in content. D- do you agree with that? You know, it's it's interesting because she asked me, do you agree with that? And I had to think for a second. I think, yeah, it is true. And I actually embrace that. I really, one of the things that I am pr- super proud of is that my work really speaks to a cross-section of people that is accessible in ways that I feel some of my colleagues work, which is brilliant and challenging and wonderful, but, you know, it's often geared toward one very small group within the audience. And what I feel I endeavor to do is to speak more broadly, you know, and I think it has a lot to do with the way in which I was brought up. I grew up in Brooklyn in a multicultural community. And so I was in dialogue with lots of people the moment I stepped outside of my door. And we were, you know, we were economically diverse and we were racially diverse. And so I thought of my audience or I think of my audience as those folks who still live on my block. Wow. And I understand Second Stage is doing some things to in terms of the audience to make sure that this play then is accessible to both currently incarcerated and formerly incarcerated folks. Yeah, I mean, we have this wonderful partnership with Art for Justice because one of the things that was really super important to me is that we reach the community that the play is directly about. You know, I didn't want it to feel sort of distant and remote. I wanted the folks who are actually going through some of the struggles that the folks on the stage are experiencing to be in the audience. And so we've been able to invite people in throughout the run of the show. And folks are really responding and feel that the work is actually quite truthful. Mm-hmm. And the play is definitely resonating with the formerly incarcerated. And one of the other things that we endeavor to do, because we have this opportunity to live stream, is to take it to the prisons. Yes. Wow. I, I can imagine Broadway theater brought to a prison um, via live stream. That's a wonderful thing. You know, it's, it's, I, I'm so excited. I mean, if we do anything throughout this run, that's one of the things I'm going to be most proud of, is being able to reach a new audience that's literally shut in. Mm-hmm. Uzo Aduba is a revelation in this show in Clyde to me. Um, she you know, she manages, she's fantastic. She manages to be almost a caricature of an abusive boss on one hand while simultaneously lovable to the audience. Um, and having a bit of mystery to her, I, it, it, it struck me that she's the only, she's herself um, formerly incarcerated, but she's the only one whose backstory you don't fully tell. What were you up to with her? You know, I really was thinking of the characters called Clyde. And she is seductively wicked, um, Mm. is how I like to think of her, is that we enjoy watching her be bad. And in some ways, she's the one character that doesn't change at all. She's the character who's completely intractable. And for those who are in that liminal space, she represents all of the obstacles that they're going to face when they get out. You know, mm-hmm. and she's constantly tearing them down, and they have to figure out ways to resurrect their spirit. And so, I was interested in her as um, as the mischief maker, mm. as as Ileg was that person, you know, the gatekeeper. Mm. But she's damaged herself. She is very damaged her- herself, but she's the one character that's really not willing to do that kind of self interrogation. And in some mm. cases, it's the way in which she survives. I'm very interested in characters who are morally ambiguous. People who, on one hand, are doing something that is apparently generous. I mean, she is giving these folks opportunities where no one else will, but, you know, once they have that opportunity, she is cruel, and she is exacting, and she is punishing. And I also think every one of us has had a boss at some point. Mm. who has, in some form or another, tortured us. <laughs> and so I think that Clyde is very relatable to a lot of people in the audience. Coming up, Lynn Nottage is among the artists who have been credited with foreshadowing the Trump era, most notably in her Pulitzer Prize-winning play, Sweat. I'll ask her what it was like doing research for that play. Stay tuned. WNYC Studios is brought to you by Zbiotics. Seize the day after a night of drinks with Zbiotics Pre-Alcohol Probiotic Drink. 
Zbiotics was invented by PhD scientists to break down the byproduct of alcohol, which is most responsible for making you feel crummy the next day. Drink Zbiotics before your first drink, drink responsibly, and you'll wake up refreshed and ready to take on the day. Try it for yourself at zbiotics.com/wnyc and get 15% off your first order when you use WNYC at checkout. That's zbiotics.com/wnyc and use the code WNYC at checkout for 15% off. I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, The New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back. I'm Kai Wright, and this is Notes from America. You're listening to a conversation I had with two-time Pulitzer Prize-winning playwright Lynn Nottage back in 2021. I spoke to Lynn when she had three shows running in one season, which is a pretty incredible feat. In one of those shows, Clyde's, we learn a lesson in a surprising place. We got to talk about the sandwiches. This the, the, the place is a sandwich shop, and the workers have this unreal reverence for making uh, the perfect sandwich. And I don't really even have a smart question about it, Lynn. I just, but, but what, what is with the adorate, the adoration of sandwiches? Uh, the, you know, I was trying to find, uh, the perfect metaphor uh, for creativity, mm. for how people reconstitute their lives and the sandwich. I don't know why or how it came to me, but it's something that I love and food is the one thing that we can all unite around um, regardless of where we are. And I began thinking of the sandwich really as um, as a way in which people can reinvent themselves. And, you know, the great thing about the sandwich, and I think it's something that is said in the play, is that it's one of the few things in which you can combine relatively ordinary ingredients and have this extraordinary culinary outcome. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in some ways, the metaphor worked for me, too. I mean, the experience of watching the show, like, I felt like I didn't really fully appreciate it until the last bite, you know, until it was, the sandwich was fully built, I suppose. Oh, it's lovely. You know, and you think, you just think about savory and sweet and dissonant and harmonious, and that the sandwich really can be all of those things, is that you can have a grilled cheese sandwich and you can put some chutney on it and um, a slice of bacon and suddenly you have like a small piece of heaven. But ultimately, I kind of couldn't figure out whether it was a hopeful story or um, a dreadfully bleak one when I, at the end, and without giving away details, I wasn't sure where, I'm still not sure where I landed emotionally on that. What about you? I mean, is it a is it a hopeful or pessimistic story? You know, I think it's open ended. I really invite the audience to be the final collaborator and take away what they will. And there's some people who leave and see it as being incredibly healing and optimistic and hopeful. And there are other people who leave and think, "Oh my God, you know, the cycle is just going to continue." Right. Right. And so I really think it's where one is in their mm. life. Um, determines what ending they take away. I suppose that says something about where I'm in my, <laughs> in my life. You know, are you a glass half full or a glass half empty <laughs> kind of person? Clyde's was based on research Lynn Nottage did in Reading, Pennsylvania, a Rust Belt town that has experienced a great deal of pain with the end of the manufacturing economy. That research also informed her earlier play, Sweat, for which she won one of her two Pulitzers. Sweat debuted in 2015 and made it to Broadway two years later. And by that point, the story felt prescient. You're thinking a lot about working people and the sort of cross-currents of race and gender within this particular class of people, a group that has always been fetishized in all these weird ways in American politics. And, you know, I think it's rightly been said that Sweat sort of foreshadowed the Trump era in that regard. W- was that on your mind when you wrote it? Oh, you, you know, I, I actually get 
asked that question a lot. You know, I could never have foreseen Trump coming. I don't think any of mm. us in our wildest of imagination mm. could have imagined that we would have had four years with um, Donald Trump as president. But what I did see when I was doing a lot of the uh, interviews in the Rust Belt was the level of disaffection, particularly from sort of working class white people who felt like the American dream was slowly slipping between their fingers. And rather than sort of interrogating their own practices and thinking about how they were contributing to their own um, downfall, they were pointing fingers and beginning to blame others. And I thought that their kind of disaffection was beginning to metastasize and turn dark and ugly. What was that owing to that you were you were observing in people? What what what? How would you diagnose it? You know, I can tell you very di- directly how I could I would diagnose it. Is that one of the questions that I always asked when I was in Reading, Pennsylvania? Is how would you describe your town now? And people would inevitably say Reading was. And I thought, mm. oh, we have a really big problem because we have a group of people who can't imagine themselves in present tense and in future tense. Mm. Is that they're always looking backwards? And there's a line in Sweat which. Um, a character named Stan says is nostalgia is a disease and it's slowly eating away at us. And I think that what I found is a lot of people were holding on to sort of American ideal that no longer existed or didn't ever really exist. Lynn's new show, Clyde's, is a bit of a follow-up to this conversation she began out of her research in Reading because one character, he's actually the only white character in the show, is someone who we first met on stage in Sweat. They have one character named Jason who is the most unresolved character in Sweat when the play ended. And I felt like there were still things that I wanted to investigate with his character. And he somehow wandered into this particular play. Mm -hmm. And he stayed. And he is the outlier in Clyde's. I mean, he enters the play in the third scene, and he's somewhat of a disruptor. Um, he, in sweat, he commits a very heinous hate crime. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the question is whether someone who has done that can actually be forgiven. Mm-hmm. And I think that when he enters the sandwich shop, he enters with a great deal of shame. Mm-hmm. And I was just interested in how that moves through his body and whether someone like that really can um, find a new way through the world and and be transformed. I mean, is he going to be able to get out of that space or is he perpetually going to be trapped? He was such a powerful character. Yeah. Well, it's really interesting to think about then if you're saying that, you know, as you talk to people to develop sweat, you heard all of this past tense, people who couldn't think of themselves in present tense. And then Clyde's is so about imagining a future. Right. You know, I just felt, at least on a very personal level, after dwelling in the world of sweat, which is is kind of dark and it's not optimistic, that I personally needed to go someplace um, where I felt hope, where I felt that the characters who were experiencing real hardships had the opportunity to transcend and to forge community and to touch something that was beautiful. And in this case, it's a sandwich. And so Mm -hmm. for me, on a very personal level as an artist, I felt that I needed to share at least my hope and my optimism with audiences and hope that in some ways they would respond to it and be in conversation with what I was writing. Why this interest in class in this way and this you you really as an artist are spending a lot of time in this space of where class and race and gender come together why why is that something you're drawn to you think? you know it's it's interesting because I recently had a revelation about this because I was like why am I so interested why do why do I constantly want to tell stories about working people number one I'm a working person. I don't think that folks often think of artists as working Mm. people. And we're folks who've experienced a lot of economic hardship and we work very hard for very little reward. And so there's a a real connection between what we do as artists, craftspeople, and folks who are working in factories and working for minimum wage. I mean, we understand that. So that's just the bottom line. But I... Recall when I was growing up, we had some hardship in my life, and um, 
our circumstances change very, very quickly. And I watched my mother, who was this incredible woman, having to work like 24-7. You know, she'd get up at six in the morning, she'd be out the door, and she didn't finish working until, you know, nine and ten um, o'clock at night. And that, as a child, really it, uh, makes an imprint. Mm. And I think I wanted to tell her story and the story of, you know, my my grandparents and the people who I encountered who were working people. And I thought, I don't see those stories that often. And I don't see the people um, like my family drawn in ways that are three-dimensional and compassionate. You you grew up in Borum Hill in Brooklyn. Yes. You said earlier that's where that family was. Um, and uh, if I'm not mistaken, you attended the High School of Music and Art, yes, right? Yes, I did. Uh, so a true New York local. Yes. Um, what's your relationship to the city? True New York locals um, <laughs> have quite a relationship to the history of this city. What What about yourself? You know, I I love this city. You know, I feel sometimes like a small town girl <laughs> because I haven't, for any length of time, lived anywhere else. I actually live in the house that I grew up in. And wow. I, I think that the city is just my lifeblood. I love the complexity of it. I love the diversity of it. I love that there are arts that are so accessible and that every single day I get on the subway, there's something that happens that kind of blows my mind. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> Do you remember when you first decided I want to turn to the arts? I have things to say that I can only say through art? You know, I was really f fortunate to have parents from the time I was very young who were deeply invested in the arts. You know, if you come to my home, there were always incredible works of art that were on the walls. And, you know, they took me to see the theater and they took me to see music when I was very young, I just had this really delicious um, moment when I was watching Summer of Soul, that documentary that Questlove made. And in one of the first few frames, I saw my mother in the crowd enjoying music. And I thought, that's who she was. And that's what she literally? Did. Like, literally. Oh, wow. It was really, really cool. And, you know, I haven't seen my mother in motion in 24 years. And so wow. it was just like this Easter egg. It was this mm. wonderful thing, but seeing her just reminded me of, of what they gave me. You talk about living in the city, and what they did is they gave me the city. Um, and I grew up at a time when, as kids, we were like free-range chickens, you know, you <laughs> opened up the doors and you just went outside, and you didn't come back in until the street lamps were on. And we explored, and thankfully, we weren't just playing out in the, in the street, which is what we did, but we went to movie theaters and we went to the theater and we went and we heard music in the park. And it just, there was this kind of vibrancy that I wanted to keep alive mm. for the rest of my life. And I think that's why I make art and that's why I make theater. Mm. So you you had that background, you went on uh, and got to, you know degrees in Brown and Yale drama school. Um, but then you got a job at Amnesty International after school. And I wonder, um, was that just one of those out-of-school jobs? Or is does that tell us something about the foundation of your work? No, I think I got that job in, for very intentional reasons. Uh, when I was at the Yale School of Drama, it was very during a very difficult moment in our, our country. Um, it was the height of the AIDS epidemic. It was the height of the crack epidemic. I was watching classmates die, not only from AIDS, but from drug addiction. And suddenly the notion of writing a play mm. um, felt very decadent to me. Mm. And I really thought, I have to do something. I have to be in conversation with this culture in some other way. And it was really a struggle for me to figure out how, as an artist, I could affect any kind of change. And so I deliberately looked for a job where I could do something that felt tangible. And so I began working at Amnesty International as the press officer um, during a key moment in like human rights history. And I, I look at those years that I was there as my second graduate school mm. experience. And I was there when Nelson Mandela walked out of prison, wow. uh, which was an extraordinary moment. I was there when the Berlin Wall came down. I was there when the Guilford Four got out of prison. And so it felt as though human rights work 
um, was really doing. I mean, one of the things that we did when I was at Amnesty is really introduced the notion of human rights as the language of detente. Prior to that, when presidents and prime ministers sat down, human rights wasn't necessarily something that was placed on the table as an issue. Yeah. I mean, certainly that background makes me think of the, your show Ruined, which you won your first Pulitzer Prize for uh, in 2009. It's set in the Democratic Republic of Congo among a group of women who are trying to survive the ravages of war, including rape. Um, so again, not exactly uh, an easy setup for a night at the theater. But, you know, ultimately, I see it. Others have said it's a story of resilience, Um and I guess I just want to prompt you to talk about that, this idea of human resilience in your work um, and in that show in particular. Well, 2004, 2005, when the war and Democratic Republic was raging, um, as we know, that war ended up taking like 6.5 million lives. It was the largest armed conflict since World War II. And yet it was not really registering with people outside of Africa and so I went with director Kate Worski and my husband to East Africa and began interviewing women who were fleeing that armed conflict. And one of the things that we found is that all of them had been raped and had been abused. And it was something that I wasn't necessarily reading in the newspapers. And I thought, this is a story that I want to tell. Originally, we had gone there to do a modern adaptation of Mother Courage, which is Bertolt Brecht's play. But when we began interviewing women... Um, and hearing their stories, we realized that there was a story that was unique to Africa. But to answer your question, I would sit with some of these women and they tell me stories which were absolutely heartbreaking about what they went through. But what I really clung to was the way in which they were able to find hope and optimism and smile. And, you know, I saw with, embedded in their stories is the story, this incredible resilience. And one of the questions that I used to always ask them is, what do you think of when you think of the words mother courage? And they'd say, yes, mother courage. And they'd hold those words in their mouths and repeat them. And I thought, yes, that's the story I'm telling is about mother courage, mm. is about resilience. And mm. I went home and I wrote ruined. And I know a lot of the critics asked, why do I end the play, which is about something that's so dark, which is, you know, gender-specific human rights abuses with optimism? I thought, because that's what I experienced, is that no matter what these women went mm. through, they had mother courage, is that they were going to persevere and they were going to sort of r resurrect their lives in beautiful ways. It's so interesting because that was the truth, because optimism is actually the truth, which is so is hard to wrap your head around in, a, in today's world. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, I think of just the experiences of us as Black folks in America over the last 400 years. <laughs> and what we have is this incredible ability to reach for optimism. And we're incredibly resilient. And I think that that's not recognized enough. It's really not. I often say, you know, I mean, easily the most optimistic, forward-looking, progressive people in this country are Black people and immigrants. <laughs> you know, for all the talk about we're supposed to be victims, we are the easily the, the biggest believers in a, in a better future. Amen to that. It's so true. And so I want to I wanna sort of ex explore that more deeply. Thank you so much, not only for this time, but just for all your work and, and your contribution to theater. Well, thank you so much, Kai. I, I listen to your show and I really love your show and I'm super, super delighted to be here with you. That was my conversation with playwright Lynn Nottage from 2021. Up next, we'll stay in the theater world with another artist who has made some waves on Broadway, David Byrne. We revisit my conversation with him from 2022 about his musical American Utopia and the challenges of human connection. Hi, everyone. My name is Rahima, and I help produce the show. I want to remind you that if you have questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Here's how. First, you can email us. The address is notes at wnyc.org. 
Second, you can send us a voice message. Go to notesfromamerica.org and click on the green button that says start recording. Finally, you can reach us on Twitter and Instagram. The handle for both is Notes with Kai. However you want to reach us, we'd love to hear from you and maybe use your message on the show. All right. Thanks. Talk to you soon. What's about a win here? It's Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright. And we're going to revisit a conversation I had with artist David Byrne back in 2022. This is his song, Slippery People, which he originally wrote with his band Talking Heads. And, you know, it's a song that evokes thoughts about faith, not just about religion. That's in there, too. But I mean, faith like faith we put in people, in each other, about how we all try to navigate the challenges of our lives together. That might be why this song is a good fit for Burns' show, American Utopia. It's a live Broadway show in which he performs his music almost as a catalyst to a wider conversation about living in a plural society. You, me, us, and what's possible if we can make that work. I was lucky enough to talk to David Byrne about his music, about the show, and about the sort of musical democracy that is on his mind. David, thank you so much for this time. Thank you. Thank you for arranging this. Yeah. So I want to start with, you spoke with a friend of mine, actually, Rich Benjamin for The New Yorker, and you said something to him that really stuck with me. You were were talking about the love that you feel coming from the audience while performing American Utopia, and, and you said, though, that you try not to take it personally because you know it's not really about you. But you also, nonetheless, try to reciprocate it in the moment. And I have to say, that almost made me cry, because while it's really beautiful to me, it also sounds like a lonely thing to experience. And I bring that up because it just kind of reminds me of how I felt watching the show in general and your work in general, of having these sort of overlapping, often conflicting emotions. So, I don't know. I just want to start with asking you to say more about that feeling you described around love. Okay. Um, like a lot of, whether it's actors or musicians, performers in general, we as audience members, we confuse the person's work with the real person. To a large extent, it's the work that they love that is affecting them. I'm kind of the delivery service for that. And okay, maybe I'm doing a pretty good job of it, but (laughs) I I also feel like there is a little bit of a difference between the work and what that means to people and me as a person. Yeah. Well, so American Utopia in general seems to me to be interested in the, I don't know, the contradictions and challenges and joys of being social creatures. Um, That's a lot of what I take from it, sort of craving connections as humans and the complications of that. Is that right? Yes. uh, A lot of it is kind of the journey of this person, kind of embodied by me and based on a lot of my own experiences, uh, from being kind of socially awkward and gradually over decades, finding oneself in a little community where you feel comfortable. In my case, that might be a band. And then gradually becoming comfortable enough that you can engage with strangers and also uh, become socially engaged socially active in terms of issues and things like Mm -hmm. that. And for me, anyway, I find that that's a step-by-step project. The show starts with me holding a brain. Here is a region of abundant detail. Here is a region So it's kind of like I'm living inside my head. And then by the end of the show, we're talking about kind of the whole society. I mean, along those lines, you, when you introduce the song, Everybody's Coming to My House. Everybody's coming to my house and I'm never gonna be alone. Uh, you say that in the show that when people cover it, it comes off as this happy celebration. But for you, it was all about anxiety that everybody's coming to my house. Tell me about that. It's interesting even that you noticed the, the, the sort of difference. Yeah, we invited a, a high school choir in Detroit to cover the song, to do inter- interpretation of it. Everybody's coming to my house. Everybody's coming 
And I don't know exactly what they did, but the feeling I got from their song was very different from the feeling I got from mm -hmm. my recording of it. Now everybody's coming to my house. My recording, I, uh, you could kind of sense that this is a guy who's a little bit apprehensive about having to deal with socially with a whole bunch of people. Whereas these kids, when they did it, they couldn't wait to have a bunch of people over. <laughs> they were just welcoming everyone and inviting them to come over. And I thought that was kind of wonderful, and I, maybe I could learn something from this. The show grew out of your 2018 album, so obviously it was conceived before we all experienced a lot of the hard stuff that complicates our American utopia, as it were, now. COVID, the near collapse of democracy, the reaction to George Floyd's murder. Uh, but what were you seeing in our lives that did creep into this show as you were conceiving it back then? Because it's not a literal statement about utopia in America. No, it's not that. Uh, and it's not to be taken that way that he's either saying that we live in a utopia or me giving a prescriptive kind of directions like, well, oh, this is what we need to do. But we, we touch on immigration, we touch on race, we touch on voting, we touch on a lot of subjects that have since then become like <laughs> their kind of main focus mm -hmm. of, of our lives in some ways. But it was definitely in the air already. And it, as with a lot of things, the pandemic just threw things into kind of bigger relief. But it was more the tour. And when I started thinking about how to perform mm. this material and mix in some older material, I became very concerned with kind of what I saw happening in the world, in the country that I live in. And I thought, I need to at least acknowledge that. I'm not going to provide everybody with a lot of answers, but it, I have to acknowledge what's going on in the world that we live in and not only provide kind of an entertainment. Mm -hmm. Although that's kind of have to do that too. Otherwise, people Indeed. are just going to walk out. I mean, it is ultimately quite a joyful celebration. That's the experience of it, uh, you know, at least watching it. I mean, people literally dance in the aisles. Uh, I watched it. I watched the HBO version, which was directed by Spike Lee. So, you know, my boyfriend and I danced on the couch instead of in the aisles. Um, but, <laughs> you know, but the film version really does still capture how much fun the audience appears to be having throughout the show. I mean, how important was that to the experience as a whole? I thought it was very important that people kind of experience that utopia that we're talking about. Just a little bit. They just get a little taste of it, whether it's kind of dancing or the, the joy that I see in some of the, in the audience. A lot of what the show does is, is not prescriptive or descriptive. Mm -hmm. It's not me telling people, this is what's going on, this is what I see, and this is what we should do. I want them to, to witness it. I want them to witness what's possible. And that's kind of, to me, what a lot of the show is about. They see what we can be. And granted, it's just a, it's just a show, mm -hmm. but it still is kind of very affirmative that way. Yeah. I, along those lines, I mean, I'm struck by the mobility of the performance. They're, you know, for anyone who hasn't seen the show... All the musicians, including the drummers, are equipped to walk and move freely anywhere on the stage as they play. Uh, how did that format then shape what you were trying to achieve? Uh, that was something I'd been kind of building to for many years. Yeah. I mean, I myself had kind of gone wireless for a while. And then on a tour I, uh, that I did with St. Vincent, we had a brass section. And the brass section was completely mobile and wireless. And I just thought, can we take this further? Can we have everybody, even the drummers, keyboard player, can we have everybody mobile? Um, and when we did that, these other things happen. Uh, one thing is that the, the stage becomes uh, more democratic. Mm. The drummers can come to the front. They're not relegated to a platform in the back. They can be in the front and I'm in the back. Mm -hmm. We're constantly in motion so that everybody's kind of at the front at some point. So that's a big thing. Uh, and the other thing is that by 
eliminating all the stuff that's on stage, it really does become about the people, how they relate to one another, and how they relate to the audience. Mm. It's, so it's not about special effects and video screens and all, all the other kind of stuff that we often use in shows. It's stripped down. I mean, and again, for people who haven't seen it, the set is also quite stripped down, you know, gray suits, gray background, uh, without shoes. All of that, I gather then, is about this point of just sort of, it's us as humans together. Yes, kind of just, if we take everything away, all that's left is us. It's a large company of musicians, and it must be said that it seems like an intentionally kaleidoscopic company to me in terms of race and gender and background, but, you know, also styles and instruments and roles, and it's kind of a kind of a beautiful chaos on the stage. I have to assume that is also intentional. Well, yeah, we, uh, obviously we want to show the diversity that exists in this country that isn't always represented on stage, but it's there. <laughs> the talent is out there. And the, a lot of the musicians I work with, well, okay, we'll take the drummers. The drummers, uh, in order to get all these different sounds, like what we'd have on recordings, they started bringing in, you know, Afro-Latin instruments and Brazilian instruments and all kinds of stuff. So there's a real drum and percussion kind of symphony going on back there to achieve all these sounds. And now that having heard you talk about the democracy of the stage, it's also a democracy of sound, it feels like, that there's um, moments where it's almost cacophonous. We tend to see it as being very organized, but yes, (laughs) but there's a a lot lot of grooves going on. Um, Toward the end of the show, you cover Janelle Monae's protest song, um, Hell You Talking About. Say his name, Eric Garner! Say his name, Trayvon Martin! Say his name, Trayvon Martin! Why'd you choose to include that? We started, we included that in the tour before we did the Broadway show. I felt like as as an artist, as a human being, we have to reflect the world that we live in. Um, and although we want to be entertaining, we want to also reflect, you know, what's happening around us. I heard that song a while, a little bit before that, and just thought it was very moving and beautiful in that it doesn't tell you what to do. It just tells you, this happened. Don't forget these people. Mm-hmm. These are all human beings whose lives have been taken. So, yeah, I thought that it was a beautiful way of putting that forward. Um, she liked the idea that we were doing it. That meant a lot. Yeah, so we just kept doing that when we moved to Broadway. It's followed by One Fine Day, the song One Fine Day, uh, which is just this gorgeous choral rendition. One fine day, one... And part of me, David, wanted to reject that song, if I'm honest. Like, it was too beautiful and too hopeful of a response. But of course I couldn't because it it is so beautiful and it is so hopeful. Um, and I just wonder how you reacted to, to my experience with that. We had exactly the same experience. When mm. we were on tour, we would do How You Tell Them About as a, like an encore number and we couldn't follow it with anything. We felt like, no, we can't follow this with anything else. We're going to leave people with this. Mm. But then kind of for Broadway, we thought, no, we got to, let's see, let's experiment and see if we can leave people on a slightly more hopeful note. Uh, We present them kind of with reality, but then offer them the idea that we can actually move on from this. We we can be better than this. Um, So we tried a whole bunch of different endings. Um, We did out-of-town tryouts in Boston, and I think we had like three different endings for the show. And that's the one we ended up with. Um, 
it does take away some of the kind of punch that you've kind of received, the punch in the gut you've received mm-hmm. from hell you. But it also gives you the sense that, no, we can actually do something. This is not impossible. There is actually possibility that we can actually move on from this. Yeah. We talk a lot on this show editorially on our team about not leading people down dark alleys and leaving them there, uh, given the stuff that we cover so often. Uh, and it sounds like a similar conversation. Uh, you That's know. a really good way of putting it. Yeah. You want to uh, let people see the dark alley, but you don't probably want to leave them there. Yeah. At, at least the version that I saw you, the encore does become the classic Talking Heads song, uh, Road to Nowhere. And maybe that's just a crowd-pleasing encore, but I'm guessing not from the way you think about your work. Why did you decide to, to end a show called American Utopia um, with a, a song called Road to Nowhere? <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, well, it is a crowd-pleaser. Um, despite the title and the lyrics, uh, it's actually very kind of uplifting. And <laughs> that's one of those songs that does that, where what it says and what it how it makes you feel is sort of a contradiction. I mean, I feel like, I, and this is what I said at the beginning, I, I honestly, for me, that's almost definitive of your music in general. Is that a fair take? Yeah, it happens. It happens occasionally. I, I mean, I love that about music. It can hold contradictions like that, or it can hold different feelings and ideas and, and at the same time. I've often felt that uh, in a lot of Latin music, for example, the lyrics can be really sad, very kind of melancholy and tragic. But the music, the music is giving you hope. It doesn't say anything in words, but it gives the singer and the listener hope. So you have these two different things kind of in balance, trying to achieve a balance between each other. And I thought, music can do that. You can't do that in too many forms. Does that song, how does it, how does the meaning feel now compared to when you first wrote it? It has stayed as being kind of uplifting, despite what it says. I mean, if we took it literally, people <laughs> would think, oh, he thinks this is, we're in a hopeless situation, climate change, everything else, which we're just going to hell on a handbasket. And uh, he's just saying, well, it's been a nice ride. Here we go. <laughs> we're, we're all going down with the ship here. <laughs> uh, I don't think that's what comes across. Mm-hmm. But as I said, that's what music can do. Yeah. Woo! That was my conversation with David Byrne in 2022. If you missed the Broadway run of his show, American Utopia, you can catch a filmed version directed by Spike Lee on Max. Notes from America is a production of WNYC Studios. Follow us wherever you get your podcasts and at Notes with Kai on Instagram. Theme music and sound design by Jared Paul. Matthew Mirando is our live engineer. Our team also includes Regina Dehir, Karen Frillman, Suzanne Gaber, Rahima Nasa, David Norville, and Lindsay Foster-Thomas. Our executive producer is Andre Robert Lee, and I am Kai Wright. Thank you so much for joining us. WNYC Studios is brought to you by Zbiotics. Seize the day after a night of drinks with Zbiotics pre-alcohol probiotic drink. Zbiotics was invented by PhD scientists to break down the byproduct of alcohol, which is most responsible for making you feel crummy the next day. Drink Zbiotics before your first drink, drink responsibly, and you'll wake up refreshed and ready to take on the day. Try it for yourself at zbiotics.com/wnyc and get 15% off your first order when you use WNYC at checkout. That's zbiotics.com slash WNYC and use the code WNYC at checkout for 15% off.